0: Well, good morning. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here at Core, And like Josh said earlier, man, whether you're here in person for the very first time, here in person for the hundredth time, or you're checking us out at Core Online this morning, we are so incredibly excited that each and every one of you are here with us as we find ourselves diving into part four of this five-part series that we have been calling Your Integrity Our World. And throughout this series, we've been addressing this tension that exists inside of every single one of us as humanity, this tension that so easily convinces us that our choices and our decisions are all about me, that my integrity or lack of integrity ultimately only affects whether I get what I want when I want it, and that integrity is simply a tool used to get my way until it gets in the way. But what if our integrity was so much bigger than that? What if our integrity was so much more important than that? What if our choices of integrity every single day were the key ingredient that allowed us to have the greatest impact and influence on the city and world around us? You see, if our integrity really isn't all about me, this concept that your integrity ultimately impacts and influences your relationships, your friendships, your family, your marriage, your neighborhoods, your workplaces, your city, and your world, and in turn, my integrity influences my relationships, my friendships, my marriage, my parenting, my workplace, my neighborhood, my city, and my world, then the question should, ultimately turn to this, and it's a question that we've been addressing throughout the first three weeks of this series. If integrity is so important and so vital to the impact and influence I have on the world around me, then how do I get it? Or for some of us, how do I get it back? And just a few weeks ago, as we were addressing that question in every single one of our lives and every single one of our stories, we introduced this question, A question that's simple and yet sometimes embarrassing to ask or embarrassing to answer as we honestly look at our lives, our choices, and the choices that oftentimes can lack integrity or choices that can be all about me. And the question was this, that when it comes to the decisions of our lives, what would change if in every decision we asked the question, what guides me? That when it comes to this very decision, what is it that's guiding my decision? Is it my integrity, my ability to do the right and noble thing regardless of if it benefits me or costs me? Or is it something entirely different? Then the decisions of my life, oftentimes the things that guide me are money or notoriety or acceptance or sexual pleasure Maybe for you, it's people pleasing that oftentimes rises to the surface and is the thing that drives so many of your decisions that you just want everybody to like you and be happy and that ultimately guides the decisions of your life. What is it that when you're making the decision is the very thing that guides you? Is it this voice that's been implanted inside of every single one of us as humanity called integrity or are we allowing other things to guide our lives? And King Solomon, a couple thousand years ago, one of the wisest men to ever walk on this earth, painted this picture for you and for I. It's a passage that we've come back to almost every single week of this series because it illustrates what you and I are striving for and asking that question, what guides me every day of our lives? In Proverbs chapter 11, verse three, King Solomon writes this. The integrity of the upright will guide them, But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. You see, ultimately what King Solomon is outlining here is this, is that people of integrity are capable of standing upright as they are guided by integrity. Integrity ultimately allows them to see this about every single decision of their lives. That as I stand upright, I recognize that this decision isn't just about me and it isn't just about right now. That I'm capable of looking down the road and recognizing that my decisions and my integrity isn't just about me. But then he paints a second picture. But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. People who are headed for destruction ultimately make decisions slouched over. And as we slouch over, all we're capable of seeing is what's directly in front of us and all we're capable of seeing is ourselves. And ultimately, as we start to live our lives believing that our choices are only about right now and only about myself, it begins to affect the quality and direction of our lives. That the quality and direction of our lives immediately shifts in a direction we were never designed to head. That when we make our decisions and our integrity all about me, ultimately my life changes for the worse. And what ends up happening is we begin to pursue things like appetites with our lives. An appetite for more. More recognition. More stuff. More new stuff. More acceptance. More respect. And as we chase that appetite and we chase it at all costs, ultimately we sacrifice the things that are most important to us. And even sacrifice a piece of ourselves for a bowl of stew. That'll be gone tomorrow. Worthless tomorrow. A bowl of stew that ultimately can't just be deemed as worthless, but oftentimes on the back end brings things like embarrassment and disappointment to the table. Even regret into our lives because we sacrificed what was most important to us for an appetite we had now. And sometimes in our lives, when it comes to our integrity and recognizing that our integrity ultimately impacts the influence we have on the world around us, it requires us to wake up and draw a proverbial line in the sand with our lives. To be able to make this statement, I will no longer sacrifice what's most important to me for an appetite that's all about me. I will no longer sacrifice what's most important to me for an appetite that's all about me. That we recognize these appetites that are all about me and these decisions that we made all about getting what I want when I want it ultimately leave us from making the impact we were created to make. And can I just give you a 10-second aside right off the bat? Man, if you've walked through life or you're walking through challenging circumstances in your life right here, right now, And your ability to believe that you have been created for a purpose to make an impact on people around you has waned. Can I just remind you that you have value, that you have worth, that you were created with a purpose, and that you are still capable and have the potential to impact your world around you every single day. And that belief, that hope, that readjustment and the lens in which we view our lives and our decisions ultimately leads us to the conversation that we're going to have today. It's a conversation that really, up until this point, has been left on the back burner. Because up until this point in the series, we've addressed integrity from one angle. And the angle has been this. That our integrity is all about the choices that we make every single day as it pertains to us making the moral or right or noble choices with our lives. And yet what if I told you that simply reducing integrity to us being good is leaving off a part of integrity that is essential for us to make the impact that we have been called to make. You see, the reason why I say that is because I believe some of these statements with all of my heart and some of us have experienced this or experiencing this in all lives right now. You see, did you know that it's possible to stay out of trouble and never help other people who are in trouble? Did you know that it's possible to be financially responsible and financially selfish? Did you know that it's possible with all lives to be self-controlled and to be judgmental of others? That it's possible to be careful and careless towards others? It's possible to be blameless and unsympathetic to the world around us? It's possible to keep your hands clean and to never offer anyone else a hand? And you see, the reality is within my story and your story, all of those things are true and possible because it's possible to be good without doing any good. It's possible for us to be good and make the right and noble choices, regardless of if it benefits us or costs us, without us actually doing any good for the people around us. But that reality leads me to this question. Is that really any good for anyone? Is our tendency within all lives, within our integrity, within our faith, to take a stance that we are simply focused on being good and neglect this element of us doing good for the people and the world around us? You see, what's so incredible is that a couple thousand years ago, the God of the universe put on flesh. And when he put on flesh and he stepped onto the pages of history, he introduced this upside-down kingdom that collided with earth that the world had never seen before. He was a king who came to change the order of things. And then this king who came to change the order of things, ultimately, he began to redefine what integrity looked like and how it was lived out in every single one of our stories. You see, up until that point in history, the reason why the God of the universe put on flesh and came to this earth to redefine integrity is because up until that point in time, religion had simply been reduced to rules. Religion was all about a bunch of boxes to be checked, It was about living your life and performing your faith in such a way that your faith and your relationship with God was all about being good. It was simply a vertical thing. That if I just show up to church, if I just give X amount of money, if I just do all of these things and follow essentially the 613 laws of Moses, if I follow those things, downright impossible, side note then that will make me good, and that will make me acceptable, and that will mean that my faith is where it's supposed to be. And yet all of a sudden, there was this guy who stepped onto the pages of history, and he began to rewrite the definition of integrity that making choices of integrity was still a good and healthy thing, but integrity was so much more than just being good. There was another equally important piece to being someone who was capable with their integrity of impacting the world around you. He introduced this concept that being a good person actually hinged on you doing good for other people. And we see this truth on display in an incredible way, in a turning point in Jesus' story as he walked on earth. It was a moment that as we look back at the account of Jesus' life, ultimately the religious leaders of Jesus' day were just simply downright skeptical of this rabbi who had seemingly come out of nowhere. But with each passing day, week, and month that went by, Their feelings toward Jesus shifted from skeptical to just downright tired of him. And what they recognized is that there was a need to get rid of this guy named Jesus. And their desire was that in order to get rid of him once and for all, the logical solution as they looked at the Roman world around them and even looked at the way in which the Roman government functioned was to be able to convince the Roman government to arrest this man and ultimately convince him, because of his crimes, that he was to be put to death. But their thought process was that we need to get rid of this guy, and it all came to a head in this one moment. That Jesus began telling stories on a mountainside. And he told a series of stories in the presence of thousands of people and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders just happened to be present for this series of stories that Jesus was telling to the common folk. And yet within each of these successive stories that Jesus told, by the time he reached the end, there was always a singular punching bag to every single one of the stories. And the singular punching bag were the religious leaders. The ways in in which they were talking about the kingdom and had failed to live out the kingdom. The ways in which they were being good without actually ever doing good. And what they recognized in that moment is we have absolutely had it with this guy and how do we get rid of him? And yet their ultimate plan of having Jesus arrested and crucified ran into a roadblock around disbelief. We find it in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Towards the end, we see that as the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious lawyers were thinking about ways in which to get rid of Jesus and ultimately to have him arrested and crucified, this is the problem that they bumped up against. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 46, it says this. They, meaning the religious leaders, wanted to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. They wanted to arrest him, but they knew that in this moment, Jesus still had the favor of the people. People liked him because he was a rabbi, a teacher, a prophet who had come and began to talk about religion in a different way. A religion that was accessible to the normal man. A God who loved them, was for them, was in their corner regardless of how many of the 1,613 laws they had upheld in their life. A God who cared for them and walked through the messes with them. He began to talk about religion in a completely different way. And what they recognized is that there were thousands of people, thousands of Jews who were clinging to his word. And if we arrested him, ultimately there could be riots in the streets if we did so publicly. And so we've got to come up with a different plan. And so these three groups, they came together and they devised what they thought was the most brilliant scheme. That if we can't have Jesus arrested and crucified because there may be a riot behind his fame and popularity and likability amongst the masses, then what we need to do is diminish his likability and fame amongst the the masses. Amongst all of these Jews, we need to discredit him. And make sure that they understand this guy is not who you think he is. He's not who he says he is. He's not a rabbi. He's not a teacher. He's not a prophet. And he's certainly not the son of God. And so as they put their heads together, what they devise is this. That from these three groups, we are going to send a representative from each of these three groups, and we're going to each pose Jesus one question, three questions total. And ultimately, amongst the Jewish faith, these questions are unanswerable. There is no way for him to accurately get the correct answer, and so anything that he says will discredit him publicly, and ultimately he will fade from the limelight and the popularity in the eyes of the common man. And yet what's so incredible is this, is that the first group to the table were the Pharisees. And yet what the Pharisees knew was this. They had had plenty of run-ins with Jesus up until this point. Jesus knew each of their faces. He knew each of them by name. And so if they went and they tried to ask a trick question to Jesus, he would know what they were up to almost immediately. And so what did they do? They plucked their interns. And they were essentially like, here we've got this group of interns, these guys who are following us, learning from us. Jesus doesn't know who they are, so we're going to feed them the questions, and we're going to have them go and ask Jesus these trick questions and so as they pluck this intern out of the mix they send him to jesus and yet what's so incredible is that from this group of men who hated jesus this conversation between one of their interns and jesus begins in an unlikely fashion we find the story begin in matthew chapter 22 verse 16 The first guy approaches Jesus, and he begins the conversation in this way. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, there's that word, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Essentially, here was this guy from a group that was supposed to hate Jesus, and the first acknowledgement that he makes to Jesus in his attempt to discredit Jesus is, as I have watched you operate and work within this world, what I immediately recognize is that you are a man of integrity, that somehow you have become a person who has put on display and modeled every single day your ability to make the right and noble choice, regardless of if it benefits you, or if it costs you, that there is this admirable feature that is on display every day that allows you to captivate the audience, that allows you to portray God's love and God's message into their life in a way that we have never seen. And it hinges, it piggybacks itself off of your integrity. But then there's this incredible correlation that happens within this short passage that if you were just to read it offhand, you would skip right over and miss, but it contains such power and relevance for this particular series that we find ourselves in. You see, it talks to Jesus and he says, we know that you're an incredible man of integrity, but then the correlation that he makes here is what does he say next? And you are one that teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth. You see, the correlation that takes place within this passage is this. Is that this man begins talking about the integrity that is on display every single day with Jesus. And then he makes this correlation that ultimately your integrity is showing the way, the path, or ultimately can be defined as the will of God. And the correlation that takes place here in all lives that carries such significance and relevance and power in the way in which we operate, and for those of us who consider ourselves to be Jesus followers, the way in which we follow Jesus is this, is from this one man's word, this intern of the Pharisees, what we begin to find is that there is this correlation that integrity and the will of God run alongside of each other. And I don't know about you, I can only speak from my own life, my own story, but what I recognize about my own life is that there have been countless moments of my life in which I have asked the question, God, what is your will? What's your will for my life? What's your will for this moment? What decision should I make? What do you want, God? Which way do you want me to go? And I don't know about y'all, but there have also been countless moments of my life in which I have been forced to admit, I have no idea, God, what your will is for this moment or my life. Is it okay for your pastor to admit that? God, I don't know what you're trying to say, and I don't know what decision you want me to make. And yet if you've ever experienced yourself in that exact same position and you're wondering, how do I know what God's will is for my life from this one correlation, we get something absolutely incredible exposed to us. And it's this, that God's will for all lives is oftentimes best discerned when living by integrity. That if we want to have a better chance of hearing God's will for our lives, we have the best chance to hear God's will for our lives when we are living our lives daily by integrity, following that voice that didn't originate with us but has sway over us that has been implanted from our creator on every single one of our hearts. You want to know God's will? Live by integrity. Stay upright. Make choices that aren't all about you. But then this guy continues the conversation. He says this And you, Jesus, aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Somehow your choices and your integrity are not swayed by the opinion of others. You make the right choice regardless of what others may say or think about you. And you can just imagine, right, picture this with me, at least humor me for a second. Here, this intern had ultimately witnessed the interactions between the Pharisees and Jesus up until this point. And his mind in this moment was most likely reeling back to the countless moments in which Jesus had encountered a blind person, a deaf person, a lame person who had been that way for decades. And Jesus lifted a hand to do something for them that no one had ever done for them. He healed them of this sickness that they had encountered for decades of their life. And what did the Pharisees do? Well, that healing really wasn't a good thing because you didn't do it on the right day and you didn't do it in the right way, Jesus. And all of a sudden, the good that you did for someone else is actually bad because you didn't follow all the rules. And here was this guy, he's like, I hope my Pharisee buddies aren't listening in this moment because somehow you were able to make the right and noble choice that cared and loved for others regardless of what all my Pharisee buddies may say or think about you, the ways in which they may degrade you or discredit you along the way, that somehow you were capable of living a life of integrity and making the choices that were about others and not just you regardless of what other people think. And then he says this last part, which is so good and worth at least 10 seconds of our time. The last part of this passage, he says, because you pay no attention to who they are. Essentially, he is making a correlation here between the way in which Jesus acts towards people who have fame or popularity or power within the culture or within the Jewish religious system That ultimately you're capable of living your life by integrity, recognizing that the favor of powerful people does not determine your meaning and your purpose. That you don't have to do the thing that lacks integrity because your boss is asking you to do it. Because the favor of powerful people don't ultimately determine your meaning and purpose in the eyes of God. And yet so often in my life, I lose sight of all of that. And I live as if integrity is only as good as being a means that leads to my preferred end. This is how the Pharisees lived. They created the Christmas song before the Christmas song was here. That they just wanted to to be good for goodness sake. Just be good for goodness sake. Because being good was ultimately supposed to get you something. And if I were forced to get honest and admit something, for me growing up in church, it was really easy to slide into that exact same mentality. To this day, it's really easy to slide into that same mentality because being good ultimately puts us in the blessable zone, right? And if we just check all the boxes, then it puts us in the blessable zone with God. And we all want to be blessed. And so we devote our lives, our faith, even our relationship with Jesus, somehow it morphs into us just being concerned with being as good as we can possibly be. And we put all of our energy and all of our attention into just checking all the boxes. But if our integrity has been reduced to that and that alone, we'd missed a very important part of the point. Jesus knew that as humanity, our lives were meant to be a means to an end that is not me. Your life was meant to be a means to an end that is not you. That as a Jesus follower, our goal is not to live lives that are purely about doing good so that I get something out of it. As a Jesus follower, all lives are meant to be lived in such a way so that other people may see Jesus through me by the ways in which I love other people like Jesus loved. Y'all okay? That as people who claim to follow Jesus, Following Jesus means acting like Jesus act, and he made his life for our example and model, not about our lives as human beings being a means to our preferred end, but about our lives being a pointing stick to Jesus, to show others Jesus by the way in which we are willing to lay down our lives, our time, our money, our conveniences for the sake of somebody else. So this first guy gets to the point finally, and he asks Jesus his question. Jesus, what are your thoughts about paying taxes? Jesus pulls off this really cool coin trick, and he asks him the question, who's on the coin? And Caesar's on the coin. We'll pay to Caesar what's Caesar's, and pay to God what's God. And the in turn walks away disappointed because they hadn't backed Jesus into the corner that they thought they would. The second group is the Sadducees who are up, and they have a question so tricky for Jesus that not even amongst the three groups who had gathered to devise this scheme could they agree on the correct answer. They ask Jesus a question about the resurrection, and the group that's asking the question doesn't even believe in resurrection. The Pharisees do, but the Sadducees don't. And as they arrive at the end of the question, Jesus answers the question in such an incredible way that made the crowd go wild. As they ask this question in an attempt to trip Jesus, he responds back. The reason you don't know the right answer is because you don't even understand the scriptures yourself. And can you just imagine that every man who was in the crowd that day who for the majority of their life had felt the pressure... From the religious leaders telling them how they never measured up and putting on display every day how well they knew the scriptures and how well they followed God and that everybody else would never be able to live up to that. To have some man stand in front of the crowd and say, you don't really actually understand the scriptures yourself. You talk like you do, but you don't live like you do. And for this murmur and roar to go up amongst the crowd as the spotlight was pointed back on the religious leaders. And then it arrived at the third guy. This religious lawyer approached Jesus to ask a question that was frankly unanswerable, a question that ultimately cemented this upside-down kingdom in history. As this third guy approached Jesus, here was the question that he asked. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And this question was unanswered because like I referred to earlier, there were 613 laws in the law of Moses. And it was the belief of the ancient Jewish religious system that none was more important than the other. All of them were equal boxes that needed to be checked in order for you to be good, And so they asked him this question, which is the most important, in hopes to trap him. But Jesus bust out an answer to the question that ultimately wasn't even technically a part of the 1613 laws of Moses. He went to something that everyone in the Jewish faith knew so well because they recited it every day, multiple times per day. It was called the Shema. You see, here it was Jesus' answer to the question. Jesus replied, The most important commandment, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. You can just imagine with me, by the time he got to the end of that sentence, everyone who was listening to him speak would be reciting this in their mind right along with him. Because every Jew, at least twice per day, once in the morning and once before they went to bed, they would recite this Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. They would recite that in Hebrew almost every single day, multiple times per day. And Jesus busts this out. And yet what's absolutely incredible about this passage is when we really look close enough and get honest enough, it would have been far easier if Jesus just would have stopped there. Because it would have kept our faith, our integrity, as just a vertical thing. Just between me and God, and just a bunch of rules that we have to adhere to. But in cementing this upside-down kingdom, he busts out this word in the next sentence. But a second is equally important. There is another one that is, whoa, 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 whoa. You pulled out one that wasn't even a part of the 613 laws. All right, Jesus, you tricked us on that. We came to trick you. You got us on that one. You busted out the Shema. We cannot negate that that is important and that's a central part of our faith and it's ridiculously important, but now we've got him. Because he's not going to stop there. He's going to keep running his mouth and he's going to tell us a second that is equally important to loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is not anything that equates to that within our Jewish faith. And then he says this. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And in an instant, our faith and our integrity was moved from just being vertical to also being horizontal. Our ability to be people of integrity wasn't just about being good. It was also about doing good. And yet the rub in that, at least for me, is this. Is that it is far Easier to be good than it is to be available. It's easier to be good. it is to be available. It's easier for this to just be something between me and God that nobody else has to know about than for me to sacrifice my life, my time, my finances, my conveniences, my comfort zone for the sake of people in need, people walking through hurts, people walking through messes, people who need a hand up in their life. It's way easier to be good than it is to be available. Y'all okay? Okay. But the reality is, is that we have been called to something far bigger, something far greater, something that carries far more influence and impact than that. Once and for all, Jesus was making it known that this thing called integrity, that we've referred to as this inescapable ought, the ought to in all lives isn't just about me. It isn't just about you. It's also about the folks around you that this ought to is also about the folks around you. You see, the religious leaders, they were technically blameless, but they were practically useless. And so often in our lives as Jesus followers, it is so easy for us to slip into the same mindset, into the same lifestyle, for us to try so hard to become technically blameless, and to be good, that somewhere along the line, we've become practically useless. Because we never do any good for anybody else. By the end of this exchange, Jesus addressed the religious leaders one final time in a way that sealed his fate, that made them know there was no other choice we have but to have him arrested and to have him crucified but he addressed them in this way that should strike right to the heart of you and me as we look at our integrity and our ability to not just be good, but also do good as Jesus' followers. He said this in chapter 23, verse 4. They, meaning the religious leaders, they, meaning us, religious people, They, meaning the church who has lost its way, they crush people with unbearable religious demands, and yet they never lift a finger to ease the burden. They crush people with unbearable rules and yet they've missed the second side of integrity. They never do anything to meet people right where they're at, to love people right where they are, to do for people what they can't do for themselves, to love them in such a way that nobody has ever loved them before. And some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, why is it that every series I've ever been a part of around here always comes back to this? Can't we go someplace else? Simple answer. This is what it always came back to for Jesus. And hang on, y'all. There's a y'all okay coming after this. I'll just pre-warn you, okay? If we claim to be Jesus followers, our lives must always come back to this. Our actions must always come back to this. Y'all okay? late in Jesus' ministry, he was approached by someone that the scriptures define as a young, rich ruler. We have no idea what he ruled, we just know that he was young and we know that he was rich. And he came to Jesus and he asked him this question, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And when we have that translated into English, our Western minds ultimately always go to, when he talks about eternal life, he's talking about what happens after we die. But that that is not what this guy was referring to. We've talked about this before, right? And when this guy talks about eternal life, he's talking about ultimately Jesus' design for all life, not just after we die, but what starts right here, right now. That we can experience God's very best for all life on this side of death. What do do I have to do to experience God's will for my life, God's purpose for my life, the way of God right where I am moving forward in my life? And Jesus does him a service and he begins to lift off some things within the law of Moses. Like, did you do this? 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 And the guy's like, yep, done it all. I've been good. I've been being good for my entire life. And then Jesus finishes their interaction in this way. He says, when Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It's as if Jesus was saying once and for all, your ability to act adequately follow me with your life will be determined by whether or not you are capable of laying down your life, your conveniences, your time, some of your precious finances, for the sake of somebody else's good. And we know from this account that the young rich ruler walked away sad and disappointed. Jesus ushered him to the place of his tension, and yet he wasn't willing to overcome this lens that he had viewed his life and his faith through up until that point, that it's just about being good. It's a vertical thing, and I've checked all those boxes, so shouldn't I be good? Shouldn't I be in the blessable zone? And yet Jesus was saying, you can't be good unless you're willing to do good for somebody else. This very place is the place where every person who has had their life transformed for Jesus, it always comes back to this same place. Paul, a dude who was living his life according to checking all the boxes. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee in training. He knew every scripture, every part of the Torah, forwards and backwards. When his life was transformed... On the back of a man who was dead and then he witnessed him come back to life. Do you know where his life ultimately went? It went here. In the letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia, Paul writes this, and this is so good, y'all. He says, for you, meaning me, meaning you, have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature by making your life all about you. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love for the whole law can be summed up in this one command love your neighbor as yourself and you can just imagine everyone who heard or read paul's words we're like whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa paul hang on you missed something there bud You missed the first one that Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You left that one out. And Paul's like, no, I didn't. Because the way in which you know if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is if you're willing to love your neighbor as yourself. Hello. See, Jesus was the master Of being a model of what this looked like to his dying breath and the last night he was with his disciples he put on display what integrity looked like and it isn't just about being good it's about doing good he put it on display at the last supper when he wrapped a towel around his waist and did the disgusting servants task of washing his disciples feet It isn't just about being good. It's about doing good for each other. And he said, I have one new command that I am giving you. Everything falls under this. Paul would term this the law of Christ. They referred to everything as the law of Moses, and then Paul flipped the script. And under this one new command that Jesus gave on that final night, Paul termed it the law of Christ. He said, I'm commanding you to love each other the way that I have loved you. And they were like, okay, the washing your feet thing, that's disgusting enough. And then just a few hours later, he would take it to a whole new level. When he literally laid down his life for the sake of everybody else's eternity. Your integrity isn't just about doing or being good. It's about doing good. You want to make an impact on other people, it won't happen just by the way you behave. It'll happen by the way you love, by the way you do like nobody else has been willing to do. And we shift our faith from this singular lens of it just being all about checking boxes and being good to recognizing there's a second equally important component That is when we begin to live our lives in such a way that we know your integrity impacts our world. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, how many times can we come before you? Frankly, never enough, and thank you. sending your son, not just to sacrifice his life for the sake of my eternity, but also to be a model of what our lives on this earth were supposed to look like, a model of what we were supposed to follow. But following that is not easy. God, this morning I pray for courage because it is far easier to be good than it is to be available. But just being good isn't all there is to our integrity. It's about being willing to be available, being willing to love, being willing to do for others what Jesus did for us. That's what it looks like. That's what it always comes back to in being a follower of Jesus. So right here, right now, God, if we are followers of you, we claim to be followers of you, May we be willing to shift our focus of what our faith looks like. That it's not just a bunch of rules and boxes to check. Sure, our choices of personal integrity are important. But what's equally important is our willingness to get up and do something. So God, may we remind ourselves of that. May we be reminded of that by you in your incredible grace-filled and truth-filled way that moves us to action. It's in your name that we pray.